Today's scripture is a reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may live in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And evil doers shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges from over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Throughout this season of Lent, we've been engaged in a series called The Big Picture. The idea of this series is to try and see the whole board, the fullness of what God does from the moment of creation all the way through the beginning of glory in heaven. So far, we've learned three things. First, we learned something about who God is. That God is in God's self, perfect relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in a divine dance, so precise, the three are one. God is perfect relationship. And not only is that who God is, but that's how God functions in the world. We saw it last week through the act of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we saw an act of creation that was precise and orderly, perfect. In Genesis chapter 2, we saw one that was intimate, close, relational. The God of perfect relationship, created perfectly, relationally, so that you and I could have deep, deep connection with God and with one another. But then comes sin. And sin is that thing that strives to break apart those relationships, to build walls between ourselves and God, between ourselves and one another. Sin operates through the things that we do which we should not, or the things we choose to leave undone. Such that by the time Genesis chapter 3 comes to its conclusion, the story of creation looks like a tragedy. But what we will see today is that God was only just getting started. As we look throughout the course of the Old Testament, what we see is that God begins this work of restoration and redemption, and that the tools God uses to bring about this redemption are the tools of covenant. Across the Old Testament, there are all kinds of covenants, but today I want to focus on the three big ones from that big picture perspective to try to understand what God was doing. Those three big covenants are the covenants God made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, and David, the Davidic Covenant. So let's start by striving to understand how God moves us back towards relationship, how God moves us towards redemption through these covenants. Let's start with the story of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, we begin to see God making God's first move. And it begins with a family. We often think of the book of Genesis as a book about creation or about sin. 
But in truth, 39 out of the 50 chapters in the book of Genesis are dedicated to the story of Abraham and his family. Genesis is a story about a family. Now, last week we talked about the fact that it's not a perfect family, right? And in fact, if you look at each of the major players in Abraham's family, each one of them has significant flaws. There's a story in the Bible where Abraham lies to the people of Egypt, telling them that his wife, Sarah, is actually his sister. Church, that did not end well. Sarah, she makes mistakes too. Sarah uh, was tired of waiting on the fulfillment of God's promise that she and Abraham are going to have a son, so she decides to take matters into her own hands with the help of her maidservant, Hagar. Isaac is caught in a lie to King Abimelech. His wife, Rebekah, coaches one of her sons how to steal something from the other son. Isaac and Rebekah's sons, Jacob and Esau, are difficult to watch. They fight and fight and fight. Jacob steals Esau's blessing from his father. Esau, at one point, sells his entire inheritance for a bowl of soup, church, and it only gets worse. Jacob's son, Joseph, is a good kid, but he notices that his father seems to favor him more than his brothers, and he isn't shy about letting his brothers know this. And rather than taking him behind the woodshed and giving him a good talking to, Joseph's brothers decide to sell him into slavery to the Egyptians. Which I think, mom and dad, if you have a child who's really struggling with humility, this is a story worth telling them. Joseph struggled with humility. He got sold to the Egyptians, so watch it. (laughs) My point in telling you this story is that this family was anything but perfect. All of them were flawed. And in that way, They would remind us of our own families. But you know what's worth seeing in the end about this family story? In the end, they all found reconciliation. Every one of them. Abraham and Sarah survived their time in Egypt, and together they eventually welcome Isaac. The baby got it promised. Jacob and Esau eventually meet one another and restore their relationship. Joseph, in time, comes face to face with his brothers who'd perpetrated this terrible act against him, and they are reconciled to one another. Just like each of our families, Abraham's family had its flaws. Everyone in the family had flaws, but in the end, they loved one another. They forgave one another. They accepted one another for who they really were. My friends, I think it's so interesting that as God begins the process of redemption, the first thing God does is to create a family. Because when we're in a family, we come to know each other more fully. We see each other's warts and scars. We see the parts of each other that are are beautiful, joyful. Our families are the ones we know the most and that we love the most deeply. Family is perhaps the greatest symbol on earth of love. 
And so when God wants to set us back on a path towards perfect relationship, God creates a network in which love can flourish. A family. That's the first covenant. Let's talk about the second one. The book of Genesis ends with Joseph and his brothers taking up residence in Egypt. And by the time the Exodus begins, the time the Exodus opens, 400 years have passed. Joseph and his family thrived in Egypt. They grew and grew to the point that the Egyptians believed them to be a potential threat. They became second-class citizens, and eventually the Israelites and the Hebrews became slaves. This sets the stage for the second covenant, the covenant that God makes with Moses. And part of the story of the covenant that God makes with Moses in the Exodus is around the giving of the law. It's in the books of, book of Exodus that we, we see the first giving, the Ten Commandments. Over time, God is going to give Moses a lot of laws that the Hebrew people are supposed to follow. But I wanted to take a moment and just think about law for a moment. The, the covenant that God makes with Moses involves the law. What is the function of law in the world? Why do we have them? What do they do? Well, laws are the foundations of our society. Laws help us understand our boundaries. They articulate our values. The laws of a community help express that community's shared identity. Shared identity. What God said to the Israelites through the law was, if you follow these commandments, then you will belong to me and to one another. Have you ever asked yourself why it is that God gave so many of the restrictions to the Israelites? There are so many laws. Why? There are laws about what they can eat. Like you can't eat lobster. It's out. I'm not a seafood guy. I do like cheesy biscuits from Red Lobster. But if I were a lobster guy and I were Jewish, I couldn't have it. Also, there's a provision in Leviticus that says that you're not allowed to eat an owl. First time I read that, I thought to myself, who would ever conceive of eating an owl in the first place? But it's okay, you can't do it. It's in the law. There's laws about what you can eat. There's laws about what you can wear. For example, you're not allowed to wear a garment that's been woven from both wool and linen. That's out. Leviticus chapter 19, there is a a commandment against tattoos. I actually once saw a tattoo of Leviticus 19.28, the commandment against tattoos on somebody's shoulder. I forgot I was a pastor for a moment. I thought that was kind of clever. Why? Why does, why does God tell the Israelites what they can eat and what they can't, what they can wear, what they can, and that they can't get tatted? Why does God do this? Well, in truth, some of the commandments are about keeping the community together and keeping them healthy. But I would argue that most of the laws were, at least in some sense, about setting the people of Israel apart. These laws, as they followed them, they gave the people of Israel a shared identity. If you observe these commandments, you're one of us. 
You belong. In the second covenant, God establishes a culture in which the Hebrew people found their shared identity and their belonging. And I want to take a moment and remind you of something. This covenant that God makes with Moses takes place in the context of the Exodus. And the Exodus experience became the definitive story of the Hebrew people. Jewish people still celebrate what happened in the Exodus today through the Passover. It was their origin story. It really is how they understand who they are. But it's not just their story. It's also the root of ours. Well, over a thousand years later, on the night Jesus was preparing to give himself up for the world, he found himself gathered with his disciples around the Passover meal. And he took that bread, that symbolic bread of the Passover meal, that, that bread that was unleavened because they, the Egyptians were, were not, they, the Israelites were not certain that the Egyptians would let them go. And so when they finally got the word that they could go, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. So Jesus picked up that unleavened bread, that, that bread of urgency, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup, the, the cups of wine. There are four of them that people drink at the Passover Seder. And they symbolize in part a celebration that the time of oppression was over. And Jesus took that cup and he lifted it and he said, this is my blood. It's poured out for you to make a new covenant, a new covenant, a new covenant. This story spoke to who the Israelites were a story of freedom and belonging, and Jesus took it. He took this story of his people, of one people, and he transformed it. He said, this is now everyone's story. Everyone can be free from sin, and everyone can have a place to belong because you are welcome at my table. What we see in the first two covenants is God creating the place of love, family. God erecting a framework for belonging, not only for the Israelites, but through Christ to all the world. Shared identity and belonging. And that brings us to the third covenant. The final covenant that God makes. God makes with David. And it's called the Messianic Covenant. Some people call it the Davidic covenant, but rightfully it's the Messianic covenant. The word Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. The Greek translation of the word Messiah is the word Christos, Christ. And Jesus was the anointed one, the fulfillment ultimately of the covenant God made with David. But if we go back to when the covenant was made, a thousand years before Jesus was born, the Messianic covenant, this covenant of anointing would have evoked images of a king being anointed with oil at their coronation. But why did Israel have a king? For generations they had not, so why did they have one? Well, there are a number of reasons, but what I want to focus on is, is this. The king didn't just exist as a figurehead. The king didn't simply exist to raise taxes. No, the king in Israel was charged with doing justice. 
to make sure people were safe, that widows and orphans were cared for. The king's job was to ensure justice existed in the world and to protect those who couldn't protect themselves. The king wasn't there just to be there. The king had a holy purpose. In fact, kings throughout the Bible are judged on whether or not they carry out this justice. Do they care for the widows and the orphans? Do they care for those who are hurting and the less fortunate? This was the covenant that God made with David. God said, I am challenging you and I am charging you to make this world a better place, a more just place. But the covenant that God makes with David isn't just with David. It's fulfilled over time. We saw this in our scripture passage today. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we read this. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promises that a descendant of David's line would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Of course, it's speaking about the one true King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, who himself came to the earth with mission and purpose. And Jesus, in turn, provides us with mission and purpose. My brothers and sisters, here's the point. When we look at these three covenants, the three big covenants of the Old Testament, we add to our understanding of who God is and what God was doing. The big picture is that the God of perfect relationship wanted us to experience perfect relationship, but sin Sin started to tear those relationships apart. So God begins the process of restoration. How? Masterfully. God starts by giving us the things that we need in order to engage in healthy relationship with God and one another. The three big covenants of the Old Testament or about love, about belonging, and about purpose. I can't have deep connections with other people if I do not feel experiencing, if I don't experience love. And so God gave the world a family in which love could thrive and flourish. I can't have a deep connection with God or someone else if I don't have a sense of belonging. So God establishes a culture to which the Jewish people can belong. And in time, the story of their freedom and belonging becomes the story of everyone as Jesus opens the table to all the world. We all have a place to belong. Finally, God knew we needed purpose. Far beyond things like our vocation or the jobs that we accomplish from nine to five, God knew that we needed a sense that our lives were about a bigger reality. 
that we were part of the great arc of history moving towards justice and peace. In a real sense, each of us lives still today under the anointing of the Messianic covenant. Because Jesus, who fulfilled that covenant, came with a mission to seek and to save that which is lost. And in turn, he gives us a mission as well. A purpose. We've been deputized by Christ to bring hope and love, belonging and light. We have been given purpose, church. Until we know these three things about ourselves, we're not going to have the healthy relationships God always dreamed we could. I first mentioned this to you in my first sermon here at Ebenezer Church. That I believe that across the Bible, what we find over and over and over again is that God tells us three things. Love, belong, purpose. I haven't stopped talking about it in these four years, and Heads up, it'll probably be in my last sermon here at Ebenezer as well. This, what we talk about today, this is where that idea comes from. If you look at the way that God begins to turn the corner on creation, setting the stage for the ultimate act of redemption, it starts with understanding the big movements of the Old Testament. God starts with a family to teach us that we are loved and there's nothing we can do about it. Then God erects a spiritual home for us, a place to belong, a forever family that in time we will come to know as the church. And finally, through an eternal and ongoing promise, God gives us, every single one of us, purpose in this world. Started with David. It's fulfilled in Jesus, but it continues through you and me. You have purpose. To do the work of setting those things which are wrong, right. And sharing the light of compassion. So what do we find across the scope of the Old Testament? We find that through it all, the God of perfect relationship gives us the tools, the foundation that we need to join in deep connection with God and with one another. Hallelujah. Would you pray with me? Gracious God and Holy Father, we give you thanks for the tremendous blessings of our story, our story. That when we were lost and beyond hope, you began the process of giving us what we needed. You gave us a family, you gave us belonging, you gave us purpose. Thank you, God. Father, in this moment, I ask your forgiveness for the times in my own life when I have failed to believe that I am who you say I am. 
We share in that request today, O Lord. Joining our hearts together, confessing that far too often we have thought far too little of what you have made. Yes, we've made mistakes. We've hurt you and we've hurt one another and we've hurt ourselves, but at our core, the DNA of who we are, O God. We are loved, we belong, we have purpose, not because of what we have done, but because you have declared it to be so. Father, I pray that each and every person joining in this worship service today would come to know these three truths about themselves that are written all over the pages of Scripture. And that these truths might prepare us for deep and lasting relationship with you and with one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.